You are listening to the Science and Soul of Living Well, where we highlight evidence-based tools from psychological science and complementary and alternative medicine to help us all cultivate resilience and live with more meaning, purpose, and alignment with personal values, even in the most stressful and darkest of times. I'm Melissa Mingfoynes, your host, and I am also a clinical psychologist and educator, trauma-informed mindfulness meditation and yoga teacher, and Ayurvedic doula. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for carving out the time today to join me for this week's episode focused on holistic strategies for coping with self-criticism. Before I launch into our topic for today, I wanted to remind you of my free four-part resilience building series, which integrates evidence-based tools from psychology with ancient wisdom and focuses on helping you develop core pillars of resilience. And I also recently launched a new holistic coaching program for you. So please check out one or both of those resources if you feel so inspired and feel free to share them with others. So in this episode, our primary goal is to talk through a variety of evidence-based tools and strategies from psychology, as well as those from ancient wisdom that can help support you in responding effectively to self-criticism. And I am hoping to cover a broad range of strategies so that you can practice or enhance your practice of the tools and strategies that most resonate for you. So we'll cover a variety of options, including more mindfulness-based techniques, some cognitive behavioral approaches, as well as some tools from yoga and spirituality. So as many of you may recall from episode 22, in that episode, I really highlighted the importance of understanding the roots of self-criticism, understanding where self-criticism comes from, because that level of insight and awareness can really help us be with self-criticism more easily. If we don't understand where self-criticism is coming from or are not able to interpret the kernels of wisdom that self-criticism might be showing up to announce, we may push it away, suppress it, or even ignore it, which in fact may make it stronger rather than less dominant. And so really we're not necessarily going for an, a, a complete eradication of self-criticism because on some level, some ability to question our actions, to engage in some self-inquiry about mistakes or transgressions we believe we've made is helpful, is important for ourselves and for our relational health and for a variety of other reasons. So we don't necessarily want to get rid of criticism entirely, but we do want to be able to shift our relationship to it so that it doesn't dominate our lives, it doesn't dictate our behaviors, it doesn't 
shape entirely our narrative of ourselves, our sense of ourselves. So one analogy that I think can be helpful towards this end is thinking about a crying baby. So for anyone who has been around a crying baby before, babies cry because of some underlying need. They need a diaper change, they're hungry, they're tired, there's too much stimulation, they're in pain. And if we were to ignore that crying baby, at least initially, the crying baby isn't going to stop. It's probably going to escalate, scream louder, scream longer. Now, of course, this may be different in situations in which children are traumatized and have learned that their needs don't get met. But for the sake of this example, if you think of a situation that doesn't involve those kinds of stressors, typically the baby will up the ante until someone pays attention. And this is very similar to those of you who have heard me talk about emotions before and the functions of emotions. When we actually allow emotions to voice what they are here to tell us, when we allow them to serve their purpose, they often move through us and eventually soften. It's when we ignore them, minimize them, judge them, push them away that they tend to get louder, like the crying baby whose needs are not getting met. And so you may have heard the phrase, what we resist persists. And I think that's another helpful saying as well. So If you have not yet considered your relationship to self-criticism, you can refer back to the prior episode, episode 22, that has some self-assessment questions and additional resources to help you become more aware of the extent to which self-criticism plays a role in your life. In that episode, we talked about how so often self-criticism becomes such an ingrained habit because of societal messages in our upbringing. And so many of us engage in self-criticism way more often than we realize and or we don't realize the extent to which we are affected by self-criticism, the extent to which our professional lives, our parenting, our romantic relationships, our friendships are affected by self-criticism. And so I do think the success of of the strategies that we'll be talking about today really begins with an understanding of where your self-criticism comes from, the kinds of circumstances that tend to prompt it and exacerbate it. So I highly encourage you to go back to episode 22 if you haven't already listened to it because I think it's a nice compliment to this one. I think there is a limit to how well these strategies we'll talk about today will serve you if you haven't done that more insight-oriented work because as we talked about in that episode, Often there is a kernel of truth that self-criticism is here to show us and if we're not engaging in that process of self-inquiry, we can miss that kernel of truth in a way that perpetuates the self-criticism. So I think both are important, the insight piece and the action-oriented piece that we'll be talking about today. I'd like to begin by sharing with you two key mindfulness-based approaches that I think can be really powerful antidotes to self-criticism. The first is a mindfulness practice called RAIN, which can be practiced in a longer way as well as more of an abbreviated way, and we'll talk about both today. So RAIN is an acronym that is used to refer to this mindfulness-based approach and was originally developed by Michelle McDonald and later revised by Tara Brock. And Tara Brock's version is the version that I'll be talking about today because she is one of my meditation teachers. So the acronym RAIN stands for Recognize, Allow, Investigate, 
and nurture. And the fifth step is called after the rain. So the R in rain stands for a recognition of the present moment. So a conscious acknowledgement of the thoughts, feelings, bodily sensations, behaviors, relationship dynamics, current circumstances that are true in this present moment. And the recognition of what is true in this present moment can be something that you acknowledge verbally internally to yourself. It could also be something that you feel into based on what works best for you. So it could look like I'm feeling sad, I'm noticing tension in my stomach and in, in my throat. It, it and yet it doesn't need to have those verbal descriptors if that doesn't work for you because many of us can feel into thoughts and feelings and sensations better if we're not trying to attach those verbal descriptive labels. The second step is allow. So really allowing the thoughts, feelings, sensations, and behaviors that are present to be here without attempts to fix or avoid. So we're really opening to the present experience. We're allowing ourselves to be affected by the present experience. So noticing what we notice is the R, the recognition, and feeling what we feel is the A or the allowance. And this can happen in a number of different ways. So we can allow with body posture, so really trying to stay open in the chest as opposed to very crunched and huddled. We could mentally allow. So I imagine many of you may identify with a time when you felt a feeling or had a thought that was pleasant, unpleasant or painful or uncomfortable and you tried to think about something else, come up with a different image to bring into your mind's eye. Really try to, to shut it out and that's not what we're going for with this particular step. There could also be some kind of verbal statement like this belongs or I can hold this, I can feel this, or this too, let it be. So some kind of mantra that resonates with you could be something you could silently repeat to yourself or say aloud as a way to support you with that allowing. The I, the investigate, is where we call on our natural curiosity, on our innate desire to cut through the self-criticism and the related or associated self-limiting beliefs that might go along with self-criticism and to really get to the truth of what is, what is here now. And so we do this by bringing attention to our present experience in our body. So this step can be confused with more of a cognitive or analytic process when in actuality the spirit of the inquiry is really feeling into the sense of the experience in our body. So of course our storyline, our beliefs and thought patterns can be a direct portal to our experience and yet that's not what we are attempting to do in this step. We're really trying to turn our attention toward the body, toward the felt sense of the experience in the body, of the sensations, of the parts of us that feel most vulnerable and doing that in an, in an embodied way and with a kind of curious interest and kind attention to that experience. So some people find this process of investigation 
helpful when they think through various questions. So you could feel free to experiment with the types of questions that are helpful to ask yourself or even the sequence or the order. Personally, I find that certain questions for me perpetuate more of a thought spiral and keep me more in my head at that more cognitive, analytical, intellectual place because I love problem solving and I know many of you are fellow problem solvers out there. So for me, really sticking to questions like, where do I feel these emotions in my body? What is the felt sense of these emotions as sensations? Is my jaw clenched? Is there a rawness, a soreness, an aching, an emptiness, a squeezing, a tension? So for me, that helps. But for others, questions like, what is the worst part of this? What most wants my attention right now? Or what is the most difficult or painful thing I'm believing right now? Or even what do I notice when I assume the facial expression and body posture that best reflects the feelings and emotions I'm experiencing? So say in a cognitive way, you're very aware of feeling betrayed or angry or hurt. Trying to then embody in a physical way the kind of body posture and facial expressions that you associate with those emotions. So if I'm feeling angry, I imagine I might scrunch up my face, furrow my brow, squeeze my fists. I might even stand up like I'm ready to fight. And so what happens? What do I notice when I assume those facial expressions and body postures? Sometimes that can be a really helpful window into this investigation. And these questions, these inquiries, then facilitate a transition into the N, the nurturance, where we sense what the hurt part of us most needs, and then we respond by offering a gesture of care accordingly. So again, for some people, this is something that they can sense into in a way that doesn't require words and for others actually having some questions to walk through can be really helpful. So for example if the most vulnerable hurting part of me could communicate what would express what would it express right now? It could be words, it could be feelings, it could be images and trying to let those words and feelings and images emerge rather than having your brain dig for it or do the work. Or you could ask yourself, how does this hurt part want me to be with it? How does it want me to relate to it? What kind of stance or approach does it want me to take? Or what does this part most need from me? This self-critical part. You can also take some moments to breathe consciously and adjust your posture in a way that helps you feel fully in contact with the most awake part of yourself. So sometimes people call this your high self, your true self with a capital S, or your future self. So just trying to take a more empowered, confident stance in your body that helps you connect with that innate capacity that we all have for for wisdom to see through the parts of self-criticism that aren't true. 
And so as you may have heard me talk about in other podcasts, sometimes it can be helpful to call on this wise, compassionate self if we have an image of what that looks like. Or even another being, a friend, a family member, a pet, a teacher, a spiritual or historical figure, a mentor, whose wisdom and love that we really trust and calling that image to mind. And then in whatever form, really offering inwardly the love and acceptance and compassion or protection that that vulnerable part of ourselves most needs. Or maybe there's some forgiveness. And how might we extend that care in an actionable way? Is it through words, like some kind of statement? Is it through touch, like a hand on your heart? Or is it some kind of imagery, like imagining yourself in a place of nature that really supports you or surrounded by a bright light, something like that. So really recognizing what the self-critical part of you needs or the hurt part of you that feels wounded by the self-criticism most needs and then offering that as best as you can. And if you don't feel like you're capable because you're so caught in the self-criticism that you're believing the self-critical thoughts to be 100% true, you can call on some of these other people, animals, places in nature, in your life, present or past, living or dead, that can help support you in offering that gesture if it's hard to muster it within yourself. And then there's after the rain. So really noticing what you feel as you walk through these steps and seeing if you can rest or find a sense of peace in this hopefully enhanced state of awareness. Now, of course, a practice like this, especially if you're not used to it, might take some time to create some shifts. And those shifts may be subtle. They may not be like fireworks, but really trusting yourself in the process to come back to a practice like this again and again. So the short version of this practice, you could walk through this practice as we just did in a more of a 10 to 15 minute meditation, but I know for many people that feels too long. And so a short version of RAIN would be to notice a moment of self-criticism, to pause and take full, full deep breaths, say three, and really allow your inner experience to be as it is without trying to launch into problem solving mode, without ignoring it, without talking yourself out of it. And then really investigating with that curiosity and kindness, whatever emotions feel most dominant. So pausing, breathing, allowing your experience to be as it is, noticing what you notice and feeling what you feel. And then taking it a step further to investigate with curiosity and kindness what feelings are most present here. And then leaving it at that. So that there are ways in which this can be practiced in short ways throughout the day. You could also, in a moment of self-criticism, say to yourself, okay, recognize what are the thoughts I'm having allow? Can I be with these emotions? Can I allow this criticism to exist, understanding that it comes from some kind of place, whether it's an experience that just happened, whether it's an accumulation of life experiences of being criticized in the larger socio-political context? Can I dig a bit deeper to feel into what part of me is most hurt right now, what I most need? And then can I turn around and give it to myself? So there are a lot of different ways that you can explore this and Tara Brock has a number of really great resources on her website including some guidance around ways to partner up with people in your life to support one another in this practice of RAIN which I think can be really powerful to do together. 
A related practice is a mindful self-compassion practice, which I'm actually not going to go into too much detail about because I talked about it at quite a bit of length in the prior episode and also included a meditation at the end of the last episode, episode 22, regarding mindful self-compassion, but did want to just lift it up as another practice that is relevant because it does have some overlap with the RAIN practice. So Kristen Neff and Christopher Germer are two psychologists which have done a lot of research in the area of self-compassion and they define self-compassion as compassion turned inward and that self-compassion involves both being with ourselves in a way that is accepting and soothing and understanding so a way that really validates our pain and suffering is legitimate and taking action to alleviate suffering. So there's a part that is protective and that provides and that motivates ourselves and other people when needed. So self-compassion really including a, a ferocity and also a tenderness, the yin and the yang, so to speak. And Self-compassion is really different from self-esteem. I think sometimes people confuse the two. So both self-esteem and self-compassion are positive ways to relate to ourselves. But self-esteem is typically an evaluation of our worth that is contingent upon our success. Whereas self-compassion, whereas self-compassion is an unconditional self-acceptance and inner kindness, even in moments of failure. And so if you want to learn more about self-compassion and some of the benefits uh, around self-compassion that are supported by research and some of the myths and common misconceptions about self-compassion, I encourage you to go back to episode 22. But essentially, self-compassion, when we are practicing it, boils down to three key evidence-based steps or principles. We begin by naming and validating our suffering. So this is similar to the R step in RAIN. We acknowledge our shared humanity. We acknowledge how our current pain is something that unites us with other people as opposed to being something that separates us. And then we show some, ourselves some kindness, which is similar to the N in RAIN. Before I share a bit about the next practice I want to lift up in this category of a mindfulness-based practice, I want to share a little bit of context. In Buddhism and Buddhist psychology, there are what are referred to as heart practices, the four Brahma Viharas. And the four Brahma Viharas are four qualities that we cultivate both in and out of meditation practice or of formal meditation practice. And they're really thought of as qualities of the heart. And many of you may have seen this image of a bird in describing mindfulness and there being one wing of mindfulness or awareness and the other wing of the Brahma Viharas. So the bird requiring both wings to fly correctly. So we need both awareness and that kindness or love or compassion. So the Brahma Viharas are the other wing of the bird that is essential for mindfulness practice to exist. Only having mindfulness without the Brahma Viharas is like having a one-winged bird or a bird that can't fly. So these Brahma Viharas or heart practices are cultivated through specific meditation practice, but practices, but they also permeate 
our mindfulness and concentration practices, even when we are not engaging in the specific meditation practices that are intended to cultivate these heart-based qualities. So the four Brahmaviharas include metta, karuna, mudita, and upekka. And so we could do a whole podcast or series on these different qualities of the heart and so that is my caveat but I do want to lift up the first metta because it's one that some people have heard of and metta is seen as the foundation of these Brahma Viharas. Metta is a Pali word that is most commonly translated as loving kindness. But the word metta shares a root with the Pali words for both friendship and gentleness. So even though loving kindness is one of the most popular translations of metta, and many people have heard of loving kindness meditation, it's probably a bit more accurate to think about it as a gentle friendliness. But regardless of whatever English word or combination of words you use, it's the same spirit. So it doesn't really so much matter. I think it's important to land on a definition that works for you that upholds the spirit of this practice. So metta is a quality of the heart, this gentle friendliness that we cultivate towards all sentient beings including ourselves. So it's really developing our capacity to open the heart to the experience of others, again, which includes ourselves. So being open to our pain, to be willing to feel moved and affected by our pain, as well as wishing well towards ourselves in the midst of that pain, when we're not in the midst of that pain, as well as towards other people. So more simply, it's a wishing well for all sentient beings with that gentle friendliness. And so in a metta meditation, there are a variety of different practices. And so many people are aware of a metta meditation, which involves phrases. So saying statements like, may all beings everywhere be free from suffering. May all beings everywhere be safe from harm. May all beings everywhere be happy and et cetera, et cetera. Someone could, of course, come up with their own statements that resonate. And I, I think that is a, an even more powerful way to practice loving kindness and sometimes to include um, typically how this practice is done is that we have different levels of the expressions of our care. So we might start with someone we love deeply. We might then go to someone that we feel mildly annoyed with. We might then go to someone that we have a very difficult relationship with. We may then go to someone that we barely know, like a stranger. We may then focus on ourselves. And I think something that's important to remember with with metta, with, with this practice, is that the intention is not to force something that isn't there. So it's really about coming up with an expression that feels true from the heart. And if in figuring out what that might be for you, it might be very hard to say all the things I just said towards someone in your life that is doing things that are bringing up a lot of stress for you. And so the idea is to not fake your way through. As I was saying earlier, the way we define metta is less important than getting to know and understand it experientially. And I think the same is true here. Feeling into what, what can you offer 
in this moment in a way that feels true and meaningful. The other piece that feels really important to mention is that the verbal statements that I just shared are one of the more commonly known ways to practice metta, but there are a variety of other ways. There are radiating metta practices, more embodied metta practices. And so if the practice of metta in terms of the philosophy or idea resonates with you, but you've experimented with a loving kindness practice before and it just didn't really quite work for you or feel right, I encourage you to explore some other options because there really are a variety of heart-based practices that involve the cultivation of metta towards other people including ourselves which can be a really powerful way to respond to self-criticism differently. I unfortunately am not going to be talking about the other three Brahmaviharas today but did want to give you a sense of what they are so that you could explore them more deeply if you wish because again I do think all of these practices work together to help us be with self-criticism in a more effective and skillful way. So the second is karuna or compassion. The third is mudita or appreciative joy. And the fourth is upeka or equanimity. Another mindfulness-based practice that I think is really powerful is often referred to in psychology as cognitive diffusion. Other people might refer to it as non-identification and more of a meditation kind of realm. But essentially, regardless of the words that we use to describe it, the idea is to name what you are experiencing without becoming so interconnected with it that whatever you are experiencing becomes the truth. So for example, if I am caught in a spiral of self-criticism or even if it's one critical thought that I am having rather than saying, I'm not good at public speaking, saying something like, I'm having a thought that I'm not good at public speaking. So even naming it as a thought that we're having rather than just owning it as something that is true is one way that we can diffuse from the thought, to separate from the thought without overly personalizing it. Another way we can diffuse from thoughts is to personify them. It can help to have a sense of lightheartedness or humor about them. So for example, calling it something like the inner critic or Debbie Downer. And I know that for those of you who know me, this is something that I talk about quite a bit because oftentimes personifying our inner critic committee can be a really helpful way to become more adept at noticing how often it's showing up and separating it separating from the inner criticism enough that we aren't driven by it we're not making choices based on it we're not going down into a deep dark place of despair because we're believing these thoughts to be true and so Another strategy that can be helpful for some people, for others it really does not resonate, which is another example of cognitive diffusion, is thanking the criticism for showing up. Thanks for for indicating this is something I really care about, that that presentation I gave was was really important to me and that's why I'm feeling so self-critical about it or 
thank you for reminding me that this is an important value. And I feel like I crossed a line in that argument that I had with someone. And so thanks for alerting me, self-criticism. So essentially bowing to the wisdom that could be present from the self-criticism. And as you all know, it's difficult to let go of the self-criticism or not be dictated by it without first honoring it. And we can honor any kernel of truth that is present in the self-criticism without buying into the message as a whole. So if I'm having self-critical thoughts following some kind of interaction with my child where I, I feel like I was more reactive than I needed to be, maybe I spoke more harshly to my child than I than is consistent with my values than I want to and I'm feeling having thoughts like I'm a bad mom, someone else would do this better, I'm not the kind of mom that he needs, etc., etc. I can recognize that this self-criticism comes from a place of really loving my child, of really wanting to continue to grow as a parent and to serve him as his parent in the best way that I can. So I can acknowledge the place from which the self-criticism is coming from without buying into the thoughts that I'm a bad mother or that he would be served by someone better. So there is a way to honor the wisdom without buying into the messages in their totality. Related to this point, oftentimes the critical voices inside of us are voices that we've inherited from other people in our lives. And so if we've grown up with very critical parents or went through a romantic relationship where we were relentlessly criticized or were bullied as a child or had a boss that was very critical and antagonistic, oftentimes we can recognize the tone of voice within us or even the specific words that are used as very reminiscent of some of those past experiences. So sometimes even discerning whose voice is whose inside of us can be really powerful because oftentimes the self-critical thoughts come from a voice or an experience that isn't really ours. And so recognizing, oh, this is something that my mom used to really criticize me for. Or, oh, these are the kinds of words that my ex used to use with me. So really trying to discern where some of these voices are coming from is one way to engage in this process of cognitive diffusion. Another really powerful practice when we're caught in self-criticism is visualization. So imagining ourselves as a child and imagining embracing that inner child. It could be as an older version of ourselves, as the current version of ourselves, embracing that picture of of that younger child sometimes even pulling out a picture of ourselves in our youth can really be a helpful way of accessing that tenderness and love especially when we're feeling really badly and like we really messed up that harshness can be hard to snap out of but if we call to mind if we conjure an image of ourselves or actually take out a photograph and and imagine embracing that inner child or imagine talking to that inner child, that younger child, what we might say, that can really be powerful. Imagining being surrounded by warmth or being held in a warm light or a certain color of light that symbolizes something really nurturing to you 
imagining people in your life living or dead in the room supporting you while you're caught in this self-criticism as I mentioned earlier this could be a place in nature it could be mentors or teachers it could also be doing a certain activity that helps you feel really empowered in a way that counters the self-criticism so if you feel really in your element when you are running or reading your kid a story or accomplishing something at work really visualizing the last time you did that kind of activity and sometimes that can really be a powerful way of accessing more of a sense of competence and empowerment and respect and admiration for yourself to help counter some of the feelings that might go along with the self-criticism. Sometimes also really visualizing the eyes of a loved one, really looking at you, expressing their care and really taking that in. You can even call to mind a memory of a time where someone really showed you compassion and love and forgiveness when you feel like you didn't deserve it or weren't worth it. And sometimes calling to mind that past memory can really be a way of of softening criticism in a given moment or being less affected by it. And also there could be a caring message or prayer or quote, really picturing those words in your mind's eye can be helpful. So for many people who are very visual or who gravitate towards imagery, using some kind of visualization can be helpful with responding to self-criticism in a different way. And on a related note, I think connecting to symbols or archetypes that represent compassion and kindness can be really helpful. So when I think about archetypes, the mother figure is often a symbol of nurturance and kindness, although I know that is complicated for many of us who have had difficult relationships with our mothers, who maybe even had abusive mothers or mothers who were were not present, but it's not your own mother many of us don't even know our our biological parents but the sort of archetype the idea the symbolism of the mother figure or a sage that witness that wise one who is able to cut through the cloudiness of of untrue self-criticism of the parts of ourselves that we believe that aren't 100% based on fact. Or it could be a teacher figure, a mentor figure. It could be a historical figure that you really admire. And coming up with some creative way to represent those symbols and archetypes around you visually. It could be a statue. It could be a picture. It could be a quote. Anything that helps call that quality to mind that is embodied or lived out or represented by these symbols and archetypes. And one other approach that I want to highlight in the camp of a mindfulness-based approach is a non-judgmental stance. So we're really sticking with the facts of what is happening. We're not adding interpretation. We're calling things as they are. And that again, like anything else in life, is a skill. And there is an episode, episode 15, where I talk about what a non-judgmental stance is and how to practice it in our lives. And so I encourage you to check out that episode as well if you are interested because it also gives some very practical tips about arriving at a more non-judgmental stance. So this is not about 
painting a more positive picture of something than is actually true. It's not about bypassing emotions of reneging ourselves of responsibility or accountability. It really is sticking with the facts of what is in a way that is non-judgmental as opposed to laden with vitriol and judgment and self-hatred, which often is a part of self-criticism or at least the core of where self-criticism comes from. I want to shift gears a little bit now and talk more about some cognitive behavioral approaches that I think can be really helpful in responding to self-criticism. So one of my favorites comes from dialectical behavior therapy and is referred to as dialectical thinking. So in other words, a both and framework. And many of you may have heard about the importance of the both and before. And I think when it comes to self-criticism, this can be easier said than done. It may make sense in theory, but it can be much more difficult in practice. So when you are caught in self-criticism, you can come up with some kind of what I call a dialectical statement that acknowledge acknowledges multiple realities. It helps you connect with different aspects of the current situation that are true. So for example, something like, I feel self-critical and I know this isn't helpful. Or I'm angry at myself and I recognize that this was a human mistake. Or something like, I'm beating myself up, so I'm going to focus on anything I think that I've done well. So it doesn't have to be an and that that connects the statements. It could also be something like, I'm so demoralized, so I'm going to try to learn from this. So in a nutshell, you're really trying to acknowledge two parts of the reality simultaneously. The first part of your statement is more focused on the pain point. So I feel self-critical. I hate myself. I'm angry at myself. I'm beating myself up. I'm demoralized. So focusing on acknowledging the reality of the pain point. And the second part is bringing to mind something else that is also true that might not keep you as stuck as only keeping your focus on that first pain point. So the focus of the second part of the statement could be a variety of themes. It could be a way to contextualize your actions. So in the example I gave, and I recognize this was a human mistake, you're connecting to your shared humanity. It could also be something like, and I know that I was really emotionally vulnerable and tired. Or, and I know this is a complicated relationship and it's really hard to be skillful. So you're really contextualizing what happened. It also could be an intention. So like the example I gave, and I'm going to try to learn from this. Or so I'm going to try to focus on what I've done well. So some kind of intent, an intention. It could be an intention to forgive yourself, to try to learn from the situation, to focus on something else, to not ruminate, to recognize your shared humanity. Or it could be bringing your mind to something else you are going to do instead of the self-criticism. Because as you all know, self-criticism takes up a lot of time, or at least it can. And that time could be repurposed or better spent often on other activities. And so reorienting to, to what that might be. So I'm going to clean the house right now. Or so I'm going to repair this with a person who I just hurt or I'm going to go for a walk outside. So something else that you can 
put your time and energy and emotional bandwidth into that has the possibility of being more helpful and supportive than ruminating in the self-criticism. This is also something, dialectical thinking, that can be really powerful in the context of RAIN or mindful self-compassion. So earlier when we were talking about different kinds of self-compassionate statements, one of the stumbling blocks I often hear from many of you is that something like, may I be healthy or I am deserving of compassion don't quite feel helpful because they don't reflect the reality of where you're at and as you've heard so far one of my messages that I hope to convey to you today is that these practices aren't about forcing anything beyond where you're at it's trying to figure out what can you do what is one small step you can take that feels somewhat authentic experientially in in your mind and body and heart and so maybe saying something like I am deserving of compassion doesn't feel quite right yet something like I'm really beating myself up and am angry for what I did and I know that it's important to try to repair with the other person and forgive myself. So using the and, the both and, the dialectical statement to acknowledge your pain point as well as the the other aspect or another aspect of reality that might not keep you as stuck as staying with just the recognition of the pain point. Another cognitive behavioral approach is to challenge your thought process, to really ask yourself how true some of these thoughts are. And so, of course, this is another topic that could take, I mean, any of these topics could really take the whole episode. But just to give you an idea of of what I mean is to walk through a list of questions, to walk through a number of common mind traps that we can get caught in when we are criticizing ourselves. So asking yourself, is this really 100% true 100% of the time? So say the self-critical thought is, I'm a bad mother. I'll bring that up because I often experience self-criticism in the context of parenting. And so this feels like an easily accessible one to me. So is that really true? 100% and 100% all of the time. What are some facts that don't support this thought? Is there any conflicting evidence that suggests that this thought may not be 100% true 100% of the time? Asking yourself, what are the roots of this thought? Where does this thought come from and whose voice is this? Perhaps I am very self-critical about my mothering because I had a self-critical mother or had a grandmother who was self-critical or a father who was self-critical or I have a sister who's self-critical. So I'm very sensitive to not wanting to treat my child like they have treated me. And so coming up with some understanding and insight as to where this might come from. Questioning the credibility of the source. So if I am the one who is engaging in self-criticism and I know that I have self-critical tendencies, I tend to be highly perfectionistic, I have really high standards for myself, I may not be the most credible source of providing a referendum on the quality of my actions. That doesn't mean that I'm not a reliable source sometimes, but when I'm feeling emotionally vulnerable, when I'm in the kinds of situations that tend to trigger self-criticism, so say for me it's body image or parenting, just recognizing that I may not be the best source of accurate information. Or maybe it's someone else in my life 
and I'm criticizing myself because they criticized me. How credible of a source are they? How trustworthy of a source are they? So this comes back to asking where is this coming from? Whose voice is this? And how credible of a source is this information? Also asking yourself, is there any information I'm discounting? As you all know, sometimes we focus so much on what we did wrong. There's that negativity bias that we discount what we did that was right and we almost forget about it. It doesn't get digested and and processed. So is there anything you're discounting? Is the self-criticism based on habit or fact? Or stated another way, is the self-criticism you're noticing right now based on feelings or facts? So are you feeling so much shame because you just had a really vulnerable conversation with your romantic partner and really opened up and shared some things you've never shared before? Are you feeling self-critical? I shouldn't have done that. That was stupid. That didn't make sense. Because of that shame that you feel. Because this is an uncomfortable step that you took. It's uncharted territory. Or is self-criticism somewhat of a habit? Do you tend to go to self-criticism when things go wrong? And so recognizing your tendencies, as I said, which could be supported by some of the content in the prior episode, can help with some of these questions that we can ask ourselves in the moment. So again, it's hard to know if your self-criticism is based on habit or fact if you're not sure if self-criticism is a habit for you or in what circumstances it can be a habit for you or in what domains of your life it can be a habit for you. You can also ask yourself, am I focusing on any extreme or exaggerated details? Am I focusing on only one piece of the story? Am I oversimplifying the situation? Am I reducing it to something in a way that doesn't appreciate the complexity of what happened? Am I jumping to conclusions or making assumptions? Am I engaging in black and white thinking? So good, bad, healthy, unhealthy. Am I thinking in these judgmental black and white terms without appreciating the nuance? Am I mind reading? Am I acting as though I know something to be true based on what I think someone else to be thinking about me? And am I tying together unrelated parts of what just happened so often we connect the dots we weave together this narrative of who we are or what other people think of us based on our perception of events when those events and statements and conversations may in fact not be connected so are you tying together unrelated parts so really this idea of challenging our self-criticism involves asking ourselves factually how true is this would this stand up in a court of law what is the evidence that supports this is this 100% true 100% of the time as well as thinking about patterns towards extreme or exaggerated thinking oversimplifying jumping to conclusions black and white thinking etc as well as where the information is coming from Another cognitive behavioral strategy I really like is the idea of acting as if. So let's say you are feeling really self-critical and your thought is something like, I'm never going to succeed because you just did something that was a failure. It was a flop. You put yourself out there. It didn't go well. Maybe it was a date. Maybe it was a new project and it just didn't go anywhere. And so acting as if would involve asking yourself what would I do differently what would I not do differently if I didn't believe this thought so if I didn't believe this thought 
I'm never going to succeed, what might I do differently? Because if I believe the thought I'm never going to succeed, I might never go on a date again. I might not take a risk and put myself out there for a new project. I might hide from people. I might isolate. But what might I do differently if I weren't buying into that thought, if I weren't believing that thought? And can I engage in those actions as if I don't believe this thought, even if I do. So I might truly be convinced because of how hurt I am that I'm never going to succeed. But can I for a minute pretend that I don't believe that? Can I act as if I don't believe it and then consider what might I do or not do differently without that thought? And can I engage in those behaviors? Because sometimes behavior can precede thoughts. Sometimes a shift in our thought patterns can take a while and and yet we can we can change behavior pretty immediately. So the thoughts can catch up to us if we can start with behavior change. Another strategy that is more of a cognitive behavioral strategy is to come up with a bit of an empowerment list or an accomplishments list or essentially a list of characteristics of yourself that you really appreciate or accomplishments you feel proud of, big and small and anywhere in between. It could be a list of people that you've helped. So really thinking about, okay, what are the aspects of my life that give me a source of meaning and purpose? What do I really value? Maybe you're someone who really values service. You really value helping people. And so your list that is intended to be an antidote to self-criticism on the days where you feel really self-critical might really focus on your service, ways you've served strangers, people you love, and on global scales, on more micro scales. And that is something that you can look on, look at and read aloud and say to yourself and keep a running list of throughout time and keep adding to, to support you. Or maybe you're someone who really values the environment and stewardship of the environment or preserving wildlife. And so what are the actions that you've engaged in throughout your lifetime on a daily basis that coincides with that? So I think having the list is really powerful because it's, it's, because it's something you can read and say aloud when you're in these moments of self-criticism. And it can also inform a development of some personal affirmations. So coming up with affirmations around your values-based accomplishments or values-based sources of meaning and purpose. Um, So I am someone who dedicates myself to service. That could be an affirmation that could help you, that you could repeat to yourself even when you feel like an act of service flopped or even when you're feeling self-criticism about something outside of your acts of service. So I think the empowerment list or the accomplishments accomplishments list or the pride list or the values list, whatever you want to call it, that that is something that can be valuable in and of itself and it can also be something that can be distilled down into affirmations that you can write on post-its, that you can say to yourself, that you can put on poster board throughout your house, that you can set up as reminders on your phone as alarms that go off you are dedicated to a life of service Melissa those are really powerful ways to bring that benefit to light as well the final set of strategies or tools I want to highlight today that can be powerful in responding to self-criticism more effectively are yoga-based strategies. So as many of you know from some of my prior conversations about yoga on this podcast, yoga is a complex 
philosophical, psychological system with many different pathways or limbs. And many people think about yoga as the physical practice of yoga or asana, and that is only one small slice of yoga. So in yoga philosophy, the first tenet of yoga, the foundation on which our yoga practice rests, is ahimsa. Ahimsa is typically translated as non-harming or non-violence. And ahimsa is the first of the yamas or the ethical guidelines that are laid out in Pantanjali's Eightfold Path of Yoga. So essentially, I just want to acknowledge that even though I'm not going into all of these different facets of yoga today or all of the yamas or the niyamas or the other aspects of the Eightfold Path, that I do want to highlight certain aspects. So ahimsa The Sanskrit word ahimsa comes from the root word hims, which means to strike. And as is common with many Sanskrit words, preceding a root word with the letter A turns it into its opposite. So ahimsa would be non-striking. And in yoga, ahimsa is synonymous with self-kindness, self-compassion, and self-care. So if we bring this framework to thinking about self-criticism, Ignoring self-criticism, pushing away self-criticism, getting rid of self-criticism could be considered an act of himsa, an act of striking, an act of harm. And as you've heard me talk about through today's episode as well as the one last week, making room for self-criticism and any wisdom it has to offer, I'm not saying it always does, but at least holding space for that and staying open to the possibility that it does, is an act of self-kindness as is not letting self-criticism dictate your behavior. So ahimsa involves both making room for self-criticism and inquiring about any wisdom it has to offer, as well as relating to self-criticism in a way that it doesn't dictate our behavior. And I think this philosophy of ahimsa can also guide another aspect of yoga which can be helpful in thinking about self-criticism which is mantra and mantra directly translates into of course there are different interpretations but the way I have been taught is as mind tool and so a mantra is repeated silently or aloud largely for the power of the sound vibrations which can be disseminated or perpetuated even with a silent repetition of mantra and in yoga philosophy and psychology mantras are thought to affect our prana or our life force energy in chinese medicine a similar concept may be the chi the life force the life essence and because mantras have powerful sound vibrations that can affect our prana or our life force energy in the body, they have the ability to transform. Not just in the physical body, but the mental emotional body as well. And they also have the ability to help support us in setting an intention and achieving a purpose. And so there is so much more to be said about mantra. And that is... as somewhat succinct way of describing what mantra is and how powerful it can be. So one mantra that I so love that is related to self-criticism is called Ahem Prema. Ahem Prema. 
And typically that is translated as I am divine love. It comes from the Sanskrit aham, meaning I and prema, which means love or affection. And so the reason that I think this mantra is so powerful is, well, there are many reasons, (laughs) but one is that in yoga philosophy and different wisdom traditions, we all have a true core self. The part of us that is inherently good, that is unchanging regardless of our life experiences, the part of us that is connected to a greater consciousness, the universal, something that is larger than ourselves. And we all have different names for what that is. For some people, it's nature. For some people, it's the universe. For some people, it's a god or goddess. But essentially acknowledging our interconnectedness between that true innate good self and that greater larger web of consciousness and life. Some people refer to this as our true self. Some people refer to this as our spirit, our soul, or self with a capital S, distinguished from self with a lowercase s. And this core self with the capital S is capital S is different than what is referred to in yoga psychology as the ahamkara or the eye maker or some people might refer to this in other traditions as the ego so the part of us that overly identifies with individuality as well as with external definitions that define ourselves so when we are caught in ego or the ahamkara or the eye maker we really see ourselves as separate entities as individuals that are not connected with the larger web of life and we become very dependent on these external definitions of who we are like i am melissa the mother the psychologist the wife the friend and yes those are important aspects of how i live my life and who i am and labels that i used to think about myself and yet they're not necessarily tied to my core true self because my core true self is boundless. It extends beyond the parameters or the limitations of some of those narrow boxes and identities. So the Ahamkara would feel very identified with the psychologist, the mother, etc. So much so that if one of those disappeared, I might feel very, very confused, distraught, full of dread, despair, whereas if I am able to recognize that who I am does include those things, yet is so much more than those things, it doesn't mean I don't feel dread or devastation if if one of these sources of identities goes away. What it does mean is that I am able to act access a sense of stability and connection with something larger than myself. So the reason I share this background is that to me, aham prema, I am divine love, is one mantra that can be really helpful when we are caught up in the day-to-day stresses of life on this earth, the kinds of stressors that promote criticism. And this mantra, this mantra reminds us that we are much larger than our egos. We are much larger than our ahamkara. We are boundless. We extend beyond the limitations of these identities and these categories and these boxes. We are so, we extend beyond our bodies and the form of our bodies. We extend beyond our, extend beyond our own thought processes and we extend beyond our relationship patterns. So really embracing this idea that that we are connected with divine love. We are divine love. 
I offer this mantra, Aham Prema, because I think it is very relevant to our conversation about self-criticism, yet you can come up with your own mantra. It could be something like, I am worthy of love, or self-compassion is a radical act, or I deserve compassion, or I need less self-criticism in my life, not more. So creating your own can be a really powerful part of this process. And you can experiment with mantra in different ways. So as I said earlier, you could have a written form of mantra that you put somewhere that you see often. Sometimes a challenge with that is that you become habituated to it and don't really notice it as much. So taking the time to pause and take it in and repeat it. You could also use a more traditional way of practicing mantra where you repeat the mantra aloud. In yoga psychology, yoga philosophy, often we repeat 108 times because of the sacred nature of that number. And we'll often do multiple rounds, so saying it out loud, mumbling it, and then saying it quietly in an internal way. But but these are just invitations and options and opportunities of different ways that you can explore the extent to which mantra can be helpful in your own life, especially with respect to self-criticism. Another invitation that I often offer to clients as a way to use mantra is to pair mantra with the breath. So for example, stating the mantra on the inhale and then stating that same mantra on the exhale or breaking up the mantra in such a way that part of it is set on the inhale and part of it is set on the exhale. And this practice is something that is also used in evidence-based psychology with the dialectical statement practice I was mentioning earlier. So for instance, saying one part of the statement on your inhale and the other part on the exhale. So the first part would be that pain point, the I'm noticing self-criticism or I'm hating myself right now would be on the inhale, then the and, add a slight pause, and then on the exhale, acknowledging another part of the reality that you may feel less focused on. So I'm going to try to breathe. So I'm going to try to focus on what I did well. Or, and I recognize that other people have experienced similar things before and I'm not alone. So pairing some of these mantras with the breath can also be a really powerful practice. Regardless of the way that you choose to practice mantra in your own life when it comes to self-criticism and regardless of the content of the mantras that you choose or the wisdom traditions you draw from or the language in which you engage with mantra, I think it's important to circle back to the main intention behind using mantra as a way to respond to self-criticism differently. And in my mind, Self-criticism is not something we are born with, so it's not part of our true self. It's something that we've been conditioned to do, something we've been trained or taught to do, something that we've internalized because other people have been critical with us. And so in many ways, mantra is one way to come back home to that truer inner self that doesn't engage in self-criticism and recognizing the self-criticism as self-criticism, not as truth. And so mantra, like some of these other tools, is a way to connect with the idea that we are more than our self-limiting beliefs that these beliefs these self-critical thoughts don't define us and this is one potential pathway towards that recognition another potential tool that comes from yoga is mudra 
And the word mudra means seal in Sanskrit. And mudra is a symbolic gesture that we practice with our hands and fingers. And the word mudra, since it means seal, is used to describe that when we practice mudra, we're sealing something in, we're containing our our prana, our life force energy, our vitality, that so often we give away that energy or it leaks out of our system and so mudra is one way to contain this energy energy to channel it to redirect it in a way that is needed for nourishment and replenishment and healing and so the idea of a mudra is similar to the concept of a banda for anyone who has practiced yoga asana before mula banda para banda udiyana banda and those bandas are seals that we create in our body with our musculature with the intention of securing a certain facet of our energy so mudra is also really important because Mudra activates parts of the brain and body in a way that is similar to reflexology or acupressure or acupuncture. So different areas of the hand stimulate specific areas of the brain. And by applying light pressure to these specific areas of the hand, we activate corresponding brain regions. And modern medicine has shown that our hands contain hundreds of thousands of nerve endings. And these nerve endings, or these nerves, originate in the brain and circulate throughout the body along with blood vessels and so the nerves in our hands are highly sensitive and receptive points and Ayurvedic medicine Ayurveda being the sister science of yoga also really reveres and regards our hands as endpoints of energetic pathways that carry that prana or that life force energy throughout our body so the hands are a bit of a powerhouse when it comes to our energy and we pair mudra with pranayama or yogic breath practices we have the ability to direct that life force that energy flow in ways that can influence our mood and well-being so again more to be said about mudra but i did want to introduce a few mudras to you today and the first is a simple mudra which is used in more secular mindfulness-based classes and this is placing one or both hands over the heart this is a way that we can often connect to compassion for ourselves there is something about feeling the beat of our heart that can help give us some sensory feedback if we notice our heart rate slowing down in response to a breath practice. There's something about the gentle weight or pressure of our hands on our heart that can cultivate a sense of tenderness and inner kindness towards ourself. And so that mudra, that gesture, can be a powerful way of cultivating compassion. And so if you are in a moment of really noticing inner criticism, taking 30 seconds or less to gently place one or both hands over your heart and pausing and breathing can be really powerful and I invite you to try it if it's not something you've done already because that is a quick way to integrate more self-compassion as an antidote towards self-criticism in your day. Another mudra that I really love for 
approaching self-criticism in a different kind of way is lotus mudra or padma mudra and it resembles a lotus flower and so you could seal the heel of your hands together and connect your pinkies and thumbs and spread your other fingers out like the shape of a lotus and bring it towards your heart center and this mudra is intended to open the flow of energy at that heart center center and in yoga philosophy also bring balance and openness to anahata chakra or the hot heart chakra so talking about the chakras is much beyond the scope of our conversation today but i wanted to offer that up for those of you who are familiar with that system to see how these pieces connect together and so the lotus mudra is a symbol of love of compassion of kindness and affection and it can also help relax the mind and stabilize the body and and really open the heart so that is another another mudra that i really like and so again you can pair these mudras with breath practices pranayama practices with simple pauses throughout your day you could combine them with mantras or statements or affirmations so you could take these mudras when you are practicing mindfulness or meditation so certainly a number of different ways in which you can integrate mudra throughout your day another way in which we can practice self-compassion or approach self-criticism differently is through the modality of compassionate touch and compassionate movement and this is something we can integrate through any kind of movement it could be about how we approach walking up the stairs or going for a ride on a bike or how we're dancing or stretching or going for a run or engaging in a yoga asana practice and so to approach these physical activities these movement-based activities in a compassionate way requires that we really listen to our body in terms of the pace in terms of the type of movement in terms of the rhythm we can really lean into flow and letting our inner sense of what feels good to guide what we're doing so even if we're in some kind of movement-based class whether it's an asana practice in yoga whether it's a zumba class or a high intensity interval training giving ourselves permission to not follow the exact structure and really experimenting with different kinds of motion and pressure and what different parts of our body most need. And so let's just say you're practicing compassionate movement in the context of a yoga asana practice. Notice if you are giving yourself a hard time in a certain posture, if you're judging how you're doing the posture, if you're feeling not good enough or thinking thoughts that you're not good enough, can you bring yourself back to the goal or the intention of this practice, which is really about presence rather than flexibility or striving or achieving or a perfect pose? And if you notice yourself thinking thoughts like I have to go further in this pose or I need to make this look better or what are other people thinking of me, flipping the script, asking yourself questions like does this pose feel good? Does it feel safe? Or how can I care for myself in this moment? Is it going back to a pose that is less strenuous? Is it taking a bathroom break? Is it taking a drink of water? Or asking how can I bring some kindness 
to this pose? Where can I soften? Can I relax my jaw? Can I rub my temples? Where can I let go? And so really inviting yourself to detach, diffuse, distance from those self-critical thoughts by honoring where you are right here, right now, in this moment. And these same, same questions and principles can apply to other kinds of activities. It can apply to, to dance, to bike riding, as, as I was mentioning earlier. So really just taking this intention of focusing more on feeling into your body, what your body needs, how can you care for yourself in this moment, how can you help yourself feel safe, how can you soften, where can you let go, as opposed to focusing on striving, achieving, pushing, going harder, going to your edge or your limit. So I think that intention, that space from which we approach these physical and movement-based practices also can really make a difference. You might find that instead of going for a run, you want to dance around your kitchen singing loudly. So again, really feeling into what your body needs, particularly when you're caught in a spiral of self-criticism because that's a time where you most need you to take care of yourself with compassion rather than responding with more pushing and more harshness and more striving. And as I mentioned in the last episode, which again, I encourage you to check that out if you're interested and haven't already, you can experiment with different kinds of compassionate touch. So we talked about today this mudra of placing both hands on the chest. You can also experiment with some self-massage or gently hugging yourself or placing a hand on the forehead and the occipital ridge. Some of those kinds of compassionate forms of touch can really be supportive. The last tool or strategy I want to lift up as a way to respond to inner criticism and self-judgment is music. I think that music has so much power and so much resonance and can just penetrate through the layers of our being in a really powerful way. And again, of course, it needs to be the kind of, of music that really matches the state that we're in. It, it can't feel too far from how we're feeling in the moment but we can all create a curated playlist so to speak that feels compassionate maybe that has lyrics that speak to inner criticism or judgment so that we can both feel less alone and remember our shared humanity as well as have an opportunity to be lifted up by that shared opportunity. So often we are drawn to music because the emotions that the music evokes in us reflects back something that we feel inside. Sometimes it shifts our mood. So sometimes if we're feeling really down, listening to something that is more joyous, but again isn't so joyous that it feels fake that it feels like it's pulling us too far away from where we're at can really help us flip our mood state or create subtle shifts and so thinking about what kinds of music are most helpful to you when you are in a state of self-criticism 
It could be a genre, it could be a certain artist and experimenting with creating some kind of playlist or it could be something like creating your own music. Beating on a drum can be a really powerful way to ground when you are experiencing the anxiety that that self-criticism often creates or maybe there's a mindfulness bell that you ring. So, So really thinking about music as one potential opportunity both in terms of the genre the lyrics or no lyrics perhaps it's instrumental and I think this is another area in which there can be some overlap because the mantra I was mentioning early earlier aham, aham prema I am divine love there are some really what I think are beautiful songs with that mantra and so maybe you aren't in a space where you want to repeat mantra but you are willing to put on a song and to see if the mantra speaks to you in that format. So again a lot of opportunities for creativity. So as we work towards wrapping up today, I want to summarize what we've covered, which was a combination of evidence-based tools from psychology with strategies from different ancient wisdom traditions to offer you some take-homes that you can experiment with and really make your own and see what works in your own life as you are encountering self-criticism, remembering that it's helpful to have a menu of options because no one strategy works all the time and no one strategy works for everyone. So my hope is that with this menu of options, you have a starting point of opportunities to explore from these different traditions to figure out what most resonates with you and help support you in this journey of effectively responding to self-criticism. So we began by talking about more mindfulness-based strategies. We highlighted RAIN and mindful self-compassion. We also talked about cognitive diffusion, visualization, metta, which is one of the four Brahma Viharas. We also talked about the use of archetype and symbol and non-judgmental stance. We also talked about cognitive behavioral strategies like dialectical statements and challenging self-critical thoughts, as well as the technique of acting as if and creating and curating some kind of empowerment list or list of accomplishments or aspects of yourself for which you have admiration, appreciation, and gratitude. And then we talked about a variety of of yoga-based and other more spiritual approaches. We talked about ahimsa, aham prema as one mantra and other forms of mantra that could be helpful, mudra, compassionate movement, including yoga asana, as well as other forms of compassionate touch and music. Thank you so much for carving out time in your week to listen to this week's podcast. It is a gift to yourself to take this time and I really do hope these tools and strategies are helpful to you. I would love to hear your feedback and thoughts as I know self-criticism is something that we all encounter and it is honestly one of the most common challenges that people I encounter share with me and ask for my help with. So I would love to continue to support you in your journey. And so please feel free to reach out and let me know what other podcasts we can create to help meet that need. Thank you so much and take good care. Thank you for listening to the science and soul of living well. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe, share it with others, or leave us a review. If you'd like to reach out or connect more, please follow me on Instagram. I hope you'll join us next time.